It's the Maxwell Institute Podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. Historian Tisa Wenger of Yale University joins us to talk about religious freedom, the legal right to worship according to the dictates of a person's own conscience. It's an important ideal, to be sure. But as historians like Wenger are fond of saying, it's complicated. We're talking about her new book, Religious Freedom, The Contested History of an American Ideal, in this episode of the Maxwell Institute Podcast. Send questions and comments about this and other episodes to me at mipodcast at byu.edu. Our review of the month comes from MP Witt. It's a five-star rating. It says, the guests that are brought in and the topics discussed here are spectacular. This podcast is a gift. Thank you. You're welcome, MP Witt, and thank you for leaving a review. And now, Tisa Wenger. Tisa Wenger, welcome to the Maxwell Institute podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. So your book is called Religious Freedom, The Contested History of an American Ideal. And let's talk about religious freedom itself as enshrined in American law. So the First Amendment is simply Congress shall make no law respecting the free exercise of religion or the establishment thereof. I think that's the right wording. <laughs> you don't Sometimes know it I, word for word yet? Yeah, I used to. Well, apparently I do, but it's, yeah. <laughs> anyway. Uh, so yeah, of course, the wording was debated hotly by the framers of the Constitution, and what they came up with was something of a compromise. And I don't want to go into the details of that compromise right now, because that's not what the book is about. But safe to say, people have been arguing about it ever since. The almost ambiguous nature of that amendment set up the kind of conflicts that you trace throughout the book, really. Exactly. Yeah, it's almost if, if they had been more clear, maybe you would have had to write about something else. <laughs> well, I have a feeling that no matter how they had worded it, people would have found ways to fight about yeah. it. When many Americans think about religious freedom, then they ha- they think of this legal right that people have to worship according to their own desires and, and not be not, not have the government or other people interfere with that. And it sounds like a really positive thing, like, oh, freedom, freedom is good. Absolutely. And I think we're all in favor. Yeah, yeah. You'll hear very few people say, oh, less freedom on that. But people might expect a book then that sort of praises the principle of religious freedom and shows how it's benefited different people. But in the introduction to your book on religious freedom, it says that your book's actually a cautionary tale. Uh, why do you think caution is necessary? Well, I think too often we have kind of simplistic narratives that are celebratory and also that don't reflect enough about how differently religious freedom can be defined and used, that it comes into competition with other goods in society, right, and other freedoms, and to simply elevate religious freedom above all others can lead to less justice rather than more. But I was interested in the book, not so much in what religious freedom is or in defining it or in giving a legal history, but really in looking historically at how public discourses about religious freedom have operated, who was talking about religious freedom. And when I started the book, I really cast a wide net in terms of research. I was looking all over the place in historical sources for who's talking about religious freedom. And when I started, I really had a hugely unrealistically ambitious idea about what I was going to do with this book. And I was like, I'm going to talk about all Americans at all times (laughs) throughout (laughs) U.S. history (laughs) (laughs) and do this kind of history of the cultural politics of religious freedom. And I was so overwhelmed by the amount of material that I was finding 
that I had to pull back from that and kind of focus the book, which, you know, quickly became apparent to me, but it actually took me a long time to figure out how I wanted to focus the book. So <laughs> there, they have reams of research and that, that didn't make their way into the book at all. And with all that research, how did you even arrive at that to begin with? What sparked your interest in the idea of religious freedom? Well, I got to the topic of religious freedom kind of through the back door, I would say, uh, out of my first book, which didn't start out being about religious freedom, but ended up being about it. I was looking at a particular controversy over uh, the Pueblo Indians in New Mexico. That first book is called We Have a Religion, the 1920s Pueblo Indian Dance Controversy and American Religious Freedom. So religious freedom entered into the book. And I was asking the question, how did Pueblo Indians start to conceptualize their traditions as religion? And there are kind of two backstories to that, really. One being in Native American studies and the study of Native American religion, it's pretty clear that most Native people don't have a word in their languages that translate as religion. Yeah, this is a different category. That, that yeah, I mean, use. they kind of like divide up their societies in different ways, you know, and organize their societies in different ways. And so in religious studies, there's this whole conversation about is the category of religion and the sort of social structures, institutions of having religion as something separate from other parts of life, does that become then a European or Western imposition on other societies that comes along with colonization? And so I was interested in looking at how that played out in a particular Native American community and argued that the Pueblos in particular started to think of their traditions as religion and not until the early 20th century when they were kind of fending off the suppression of their ceremonies by the, by the U.S. government. And so they did so in order to make a religious freedom argument. So that's how religious freedom entered in. And then coming out of that, and then I was interested in what the consequences of that were for them. And so coming out of that book, I wanted to ask a similar set of questions about religious freedom on a broader scale. And so that's how this book started. Who's talking about religious freedom? What does it do for them? How does it shape how we all think of what religion is? And how does it shape people's identities and communities in relation to American racism and imperialism, those are the themes, race and empire. For a long time, the working title of the book was Race, Empire, and, and Religious Freedom, but the press didn't like that title. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Got to go with the press. We, we, we compromised. <laughs> yeah, and that kind of sets up the pattern of the book itself, where basically what we have in this book are stories of people who face some kind of restrictions about their ways of life, some kind of imposition on, on their ways of what... American, European, Westerners would start to call religion, and then they then resist that in some way, and, and usually by adopting that category to defend themselves. Correct. Uh, kind Cor of a thing, right? With the exception of the first chapter, really, which is, I think, setting up the rest of the book by talking about how religious freedom operated in the particular case of the Spanish-American War and the colonization of the Philippines, kind of as a tool for U.S. imperialism. Yeah. And and before we get to that, too, did you have a religious background yourself as well that kind of sparked your interest in this, or was that uh, incidental to arriving at that through your Pueblo research? I, I Yes, I do. And yes, I think it is relevant. I, I grew up Mennonite in the Mennonite church, 
And my parents were Mennonite missionaries. They had a long career as missionaries in five different African countries. So I was born in Sierra Leone in West Africa and lived in Swaziland as a child, where we actually had um, refugees from the anti-apartheid struggle in South Africa at that time visiting our home at times. And so I was hearing a lot of really interesting dinner table yeah. conversations. And as a child, I wasn't quite aware of all of this, but looking back at how we were there really not that long after Swaziland became independent from the British Empire. And so the kind of post-colonial transitions of a newly independent African country combined with the anti-apartheid struggle by in South Africa, which is almost entirely geographically surrounding Swaziland, was very formative for me in terms of my concerns about religion, race, and empire. And so <laughs> those, you know, that background, I think, shaped me as a scholar and the reason that I got into religious studies and my concerns in religious studies, broadly speaking. You know, that doesn't lead me directly to the topic of religious freedom. But I think, as perhaps is maybe already evident from what I've been saying, you know, religious freedom was a kind of where I got to through that set of concerns rather than my starting point. Right. And, and in some ways, I think for me, even all the way writing through this book, religious freedom is more a lens through which to talk about <laughs> these other issues. And it's not that I don't care about religious freedom, but that wasn't really ever my starting point, which gives me a different perspective on the history of religious freedom than someone who really started focusing on that topic, I think. Right. Okay, let's go to the Philippines then. Your book's opening chapter takes us back to the late 1890s. Uh, McKinley is president. The United States is celebrating victory in the Spanish-American War. And this is where you begin this chapter. Religious freedom kind of became a marker of American supremacy to a lot of Americans, that they were bringing this amazing thing to the Philippines. That's right. And I also look in that chapter at how this was predominantly a Protestant discourse, and American Protestants claimed religious freedom as something that, you know, was really distinctively Protestant or a Protestant gift to the world. And so then defeating Spain, which was kind of caricatured as a tyrannical empire because of its Catholicism. And so Catholicism is the, is the enemy. And so then I'm able to look at, well, what did American Catholics think about that? And how did American Catholics position themselves, as well as to some extent to American Jews, who I talk about more in a later chapter. But it was quite interesting to see the different ways that Catholics and Protestants talked about religious freedom in relation to the war with Spain and the colonization of the Philippines. And then, you know, Filipinos are seen, are discussed by all of these groups really as racially inferior. Um, they need tutelage. They need this enlightened group, whether Spain or whether the United States, to come in and sort of civilize them and Bring religion to them. Exactly. And both American Protestants and Catholics talked about Spain as having sort of only partially civilized them. Yeah, this and, is the problem of religious freedom here, though, right? Because yes. Catholicism had deep roots there at this point. They had been yes. governing there. And now American Protestants are coming in and kind of stripping power away from that, which the Catholics could then say is 
infringing on their religious freedom. That's exactly right. You've read the book well. (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, so the Protestant voices, and of course, I'm overgeneralizing here, and there's a little more texture to the story in the book, but... That's a pitch to go read the book, everybody. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) But yeah, the, the, the Protestants really, in general, saw Catholicism as the problem, right? Like the reason that Filipinos had only progressed, so progressed quote unquote, you know, so far in their civilization. Like how well schooled were they? How well educated were they? Uh, What was their businesses looking like? Even how well was their society structured, engineered uh, on every level? On every level, American Protestants saw Catholicism as a barrier to expanding freedom in the the Philippines. How how deeply were they really interested in religious freedom then if they were also at the same time stripping power away from another religious body? Did they grapple with that paradox? Some of them did. And so interestingly, you know, the American Protestants in lots of kind of colonial fields, (laughs) including the Philippines, would coordinate with each other and sort of set up territorial divisions like we'll, you know, the Baptists will take this area, the Methodists will take that area. But in the Philippines, the Episcopal Church didn't want to play that game because they said, you guys are evangelizing these Catholics, but the Catholics are already Christians. So there was a, there's a, there was an Episcopal bishop there who said, you know, we have no interest in trying to evangelize Catholics, and we need to work with the Catholics. So that, that, was a, that was a kind of conflict among Protestant groups in the Philippines. They, they certainly had different ideas about that. And did Catholics try to invoke the principle of religious freedom? Because Spain didn't have a First Amendment. They had views about how society and religion should mingle. And here come these Protestants who are then kind of taking over. Did they try to push back by saying, well, hey, what about religious freedom? They absolutely did. Both Filipino Catholics and American Catholics pushed back against that and said, I mean, some of them said Protestants shouldn't be coming in at all because they have this very derogatory view of Catholics and they're trying to push out Catholics. And instead, we should be building up the existing Christianity and the Filipino people don't want Protestantism. And so honoring their religious freedom is to, is, should, the way to do that is to honor their Catholicism, right? And so, which would include letting reason, them keep their land that they had <laughs> and not kicking uh, priests out of the country, like literal, yes, like there real were things. Huge land yeah. disputes yeah. because the um, the Catholic Church owned huge tracts of you know pla- plantations, really, in the Philippines, where they also exploited Filipino work- workers. The Catholic, the the Church, uh, as other colonial. <laughs> sort of institutions did. So the, the church isn't sort of distinctively villainous in this, but the church did own huge areas of the islands. And so then there were big fights about that in the courts under American colonial rule. And religious freedom entered into those battles because should, you know, first of all, it was a battle over who had really owned that land? Was it church land or was it government land? And if it was government land, then it should transfer to the new government authority, right? Which 
And then it's not a religious freedom issue because that wasn't your land to begin with. Sorry. Right. But, right. but yeah. the Catholic Church argued on religious freedom grounds that this was mm-hmm. church land and for the government to take it away was a violation of the rights of the church and therefore of the First Amendment and of the freedom of religion. But the U.S. colonial authorities weren't buying that. And by the way, we haven't. what we haven't talked about yet is the other group involved in those disputes, which are Filipino nationalists, because the Filipinos had been involved in their own war for independence against Spain. And even in, for, within the Catholic Church as well, you had priests who were resistant to or trying to do things that the Catholic Church would say, hey, you can't do that. So you yes. had schisms in the Catholic Church and and schisms with the government by Filipino nationalists who said, we want our own independence. We don't want Spain. We also don't want the United States. That's right. So they had been involved in their own revolutionary war before the United States ever entered into the war against Spain. And initially, Filipino revolutionaries welcomed Americans as allies against Spain, thinking, and they kind of uh, saw parallels between their revolution and the American Revolution. And so they thought the United States was going to be an ally in kind of throwing off this colonial uh, overlord. And then they were really angry when the United States turned around and made a peace treaty with Spain that turned the Philippines over to the United States. And the United States then claimed uh, ownership of of them and denied their appeal for independence. And so they then turned that war for independence against the United States. In terms of these religious freedom issues and the church, there were some, well, the Catholic Church had not given equal status to Filipino priests. There were Filipino priests, but they had been mostly barred from the sort of most important positions. Yep, yeah. <laughs> and even as being sort of um, the head heading up major parishes and so forth, they were more assist in the role of assistant priests. They were angry about that and had been for a long time trying to get that to change and get equality within the church. And that's mostly what they wanted initially. They wanted equality within the church, not to break away from the church. And even in the Catholic Church then, because the Catholic Church in the Philippines was run by Spanish bishops and a Spanish archbishop, they were naturally opposed to the independence movement. And so when Filipino priests joined the independence movement, they were severely disciplined and even excommunicated for doing so. And so when the church threw them out, they started their own Philippine independent church. And Gregorio Aglape was the, became the new archbishop of that newly independent church. American Protestant missionaries were thrilled by this and saw it as a new Filipino Reformation. Yeah, it's and, sort of a new Protestant movement right yes, here. Yeah. exactly, and thought that the Philippine Independent Church would um, kind of merge easily with these with with American Protestant denominations and kind of be, go under their tutelage. And so they were rather surprised when Filipino Christians said. Sorry, but you know we're not interested in your Protestant structures. We ha- we're still we, Catholic. We're still Catholic. We want our own church. You know, we're Catholic in everything, but except for the connection to the Vatican, <laughs> except, yeah. right? Which, which they, we still want. They st- they had still wanted yeah. until uh, I mean that that gradually changed. You yeah. know, of co- the the Philippine Independent Church 
eventually splintered and a major part of it joined the Anglican Communion and for a while was under the structure of the within the structure of the American Episcopal Church and other splinter groups became unitarian in fact Aglipay himself by the end of his life claimed a unitarian identity so how do you tie a bow around that chapter what how does that chapter sort of wind up in your book and this, by the way, I think we, d- we didn't say, but we've moved into the subject of chapter two, yeah. which is what happens on the ground in the Philippines. Right. Well, that chapter has the, the main question of that chapter is how did the people of the Philippines then use this um, idea of religious freedom to kind of speak back to U.S. empire, right? How did it work for them or not work for them? And for the Philippine Independent Church, I kind of show how they use religious freedom as a tool to carve out space for themselves in the Philippines, right? And yeah, religious freedom could be a sword that cuts both ways. Yes, yeah. exactly. I mean, it, it was, on the one hand, a tool for U.S. imperialism. On the other hand, a tool for for these colonized people to say, not so fast, you know, we have our own religious movement and according to the, Const- the U.S. Constitution, but then the other part of the chapter is talking about a very different group of people in the Philippines who are the, the Muslim Moros in the southern Philippines who saw themselves as a distinct people and didn't, you know, very different from the predominantly Catholic Filipinos. So they too, I would say, had religious freedom used against them <laughs> and used religious freedom to try to defend their own ways of life and their own structures of of governance and of of religious practice in the southern Philippines, which didn't in Mindanao and Sulu, these um, southern islands in the in the in the Philippines, which didn't always, which didn't eventually work out very well for them because the U.S. saw Muslims and the Moros as even more quote unquote savage, you know, that was the those were the words that Americans colonial officials used at that time, and actually, you know, compared, at various times compared the Moros, and other indigenous minority groups in the Philippines, to Native Americans, as people who needed to be civilized, uplifted, who were, you know, if they saw the kind of majority Catholic population in the Philippines as half-civilized, they saw these people as savage, barbarian, not civilized at all. And so that's kind of the scale of civilization that was this, this hierarchy that was both, you can see there how race and religion are kind of co-constituted in the way that Americans are thinking about and categorizing and treating these people quite differently. So how kind of religious freedom policy from American officials, from the colonial government, played out differently for these different populations. So I'm thinking about all of those things in these first two chapters of the book. The issue of religious freedom is not so simple. When you start thinking about it in terms of race, when you start thinking about it in terms of empire, it becomes more complicated. And uh, people can read more about how the Philippines shook out in the book Religious Freedom, The Contested History of an American Ideal by Tisa Wenger. We're talking with her today about that book. So let's talk about indigenous people. Let's come back to American soil here. And so the United States government was trying to figure out religious freedom overseas in these colonial endeavors. But there were also things at home that 
demanded a lot of attention. So Native Americans is one thing. Your book shows how Native peoples used the principle of religious freedom to defend their ways of life, even though it wasn't a Native category for them. But religious freedom, even though religious freedom wasn't a Native category for them. So let's talk about Native Americans invoking religious freedom. Yeah, we absolutely. We talked about this a little bit already, but let, let's pick up with Yeah, that. so, and let me just start by saying, I in, in starting with the Spanish-American War and the Philippines, I, I took maybe a kind of perverse pleasure in that structure because, first of all, people don't expect to go to the Philippines in a book about American religious freedom. <laughs> I certainly didn't, yeah. You're... And I didn't, when I started my research for right. this book, I didn't expect to start there. But a lot of, some of my initial readers before the book was published said, why do you have the Philippines before Native Americans? Because, you know, clearly the colonization of Native Americans happened before Earlier, right. the colonization of the Philippines. And shouldn't the that story be told first? And I considered that, and there would have been a logic to that, certainly. But I decided to keep the Native American chapter in the middle, in part because, well, for, for, for several reasons. I mean, it, it disrupts our expectations. But it's also the case that the kind of chronological center to the story I'm actually telling is, is a little later than the material that I focus on in the Philippines, which is really 1898 to the, you know, the very early years of the 20th century. And so in the Native American chapter, it's moving from kind of like 1890, the ghost dance, through the 1930s. And I don't in any significant way move that far forward in time in the chapters on the Philippines. Yeah, so, so basically chronologically, uh, the United States' encounter with Native Americans in the beginning wasn't focused on questions of religious freedom. It, right. and, and Native Americans weren't thinking about it in those terms. They were thinking about it in terms of survival and keeping land and right. things like Although that. Although I have certainly, I mean, in my sort of broader research, found Native Americans talking about religious freedom as early as the 18th century. Hmm. It's... I think I could make a broad generalization to say that where the United States has colonized people, whether or not those people had much discussion about religious freedom as such before the United States got there, they start to use it almost immediately there, thereafter, right? So different Native nations, as they have this colonial encounter start using religious freedom as a way to 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 argue back to the United States and there are different ways that that works and and this is a, another dimension that comes up in the chapter on the Philippines as well but we didn't talk about today is religious freedom as as nations right so at on one hand when different groups are trying to resist colonization in the first place they sometimes used religious freedom to say, we have our own religion, like we're a, we're a separate nation, we have our own religious freedom, so and so forth, right? Like, we don't need your laws. <laughs> right. Yeah. And we don't need your religion, like stay away entirely. And, and follow your own principles. Yes. If you really value religious freedom, then you need to value ours as well. Exactly. But then after sort of they've been forced often at gunpoint to accept colonial rule and then are kind of under U.S. law, then there starts to be a conversation about give us religious freedom and appealing to the U.S. Constitution 
as U.S. citizens and subjects, right? And then sometimes the, the conversation becomes more complex because individuals within tribal groups can be arguing for religious freedom against tribal authorities at times mm-hmm. and appealing to U.S. officials and, on the other hand, can also be, as groups, appealing for religious freedom under U.S. law. But all of this to say, you know, I, don't, I see the chapter on Native Americans very much as continuous with the chapter on the Philippines. And it was an interesting kind of comparison, set of comparisons to make, because obviously the two contexts are very different. But it's important for me to stress that Native Americans are a colonized people and still a colonized people, right? So it's not, or colonized peoples, many, many Native nations who are still fighting for sovereignty as nations and recognition as nations sort of within the United States. But over the course of the 19th century, you know, the United States was was expanding and taking over land. And so disputes over land in a different way than we talked about in the Philippines, but disputes over land are absolutely kind of foundational to any of this religious history or religious freedom history. And because Native Americans started adopting the rhetoric of religious freedom to defend their own practices, this challenged America's definition of what even counted as religious. Talk about that. Yeah, so that's a really important part of what I'm doing in this work. American officials talk about Native traditions as savage, heathen, in pagan, pagan or, yeah. and also as, you know, superstitious, fraudulent, tyrannical, kind of holding back Native people from progress and from modernizing. They, because they saw Christianity as a modernizing force and as a source of spiritual liberty. And human uplift. Correct. To match their vision of what uplift meant. Right. So they encouraged Christian missions and worked closely with missionaries in an effort to civilize and assimilate Native people and often talked about that as a advancement for for native freedom and even for native religious freedom like if native people were being held back or enslaved was the rhetoric that was sometimes used by their own traditions and by their own tribal leaders then bringing christianity was seen to not only civilize them but to free them um, to have in, in real this, religion, right? Kind of right, in the quote, same unquote. way that we talked about in the in the in the Philippines context, where Protestants yeah. said Protestantism is going to liberate these people who've been enslaved by Catholicism. For Native Americans, I mean, there were also Native Catholics, of course, for a long time before the United States moved into some of these areas that had been colonized by Spain and France, but both. Catholicism and Native traditions were seen as kind of by Protestant authorities and Protestant missionaries as enslaving people. So that's where religious freedom becomes a kind of tool for for a real kind of Protestant intolerance. That, Instead of like religious freedom in terms of recognizing, oh, that's their religion, so we shouldn't yeah. impose on that. So Native traditions were literally criminalized. People were put in 
imprisoned and fined for practicing native native traditions. And, and native this would people be like said dance certain dances and certain cur- yeah, yeah, that's right. And you know, those people called medicine men could be fined, imprisoned by U.S. authorities. This is in the late 19th century, starting in the 1880s up through the 1930s, that those policies were in mm. place and enforced, you know, inconsistently, unevenly, but sometimes absolutely enforced and people were ab- were imprisoned and fined for practicing those traditions. And so Native people said, no, these are our religions. You know, we have, and, and we have the right to practice them. And so I found in Really, in the records of the Bureau of Indian Affairs, most are most of my primary sources, although I used other kinds of sources as well, but letters and petitions from tribal leaders demanding religious freedom <laughs> against those policies and insisting against the sort of derogatory, demeaning characterizations and criminalization of their traditions, insisting that they uh, deserved religious freedom as well. So what's the specific way then that America's definition of religion had ended up shifting as a result of of Native Americans pushing back? Right. So I, I do think the government was eventually forced to concede <laughs> And Native people eventually gained some white, you know, non-Indian allies in that effort who started to say, well, yes, those are, these are religions and they, they deserve religious freedom. And some government officials, you know, became sympathetic to a degree and said Native traditions also must be granted religious freedom. But at the same time, there were limits to that. And the authorities always had this sort of understanding in mind of what religion is that was set by a Christian model. So worship that happens in church, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Certain kind, you know, this is what religion looks like. This is what religion does, right? And so Native traditions that didn't look anything like that, it was harder for officials to see them as religion. So even when they, in principle, said Native people have religion and they deserve religious freedom— when Native practices didn't look anything like Christianity, they had a harder time recognizing them as religion and acknowledging their validity as such. And so that exerted a kind of pressure on Native people to make their traditions look more like Christianity or even to adopt Christian, even to become Christian, right, to adopt Christianity. Of course, they had other reasons to adopt Christianity, too. And there are many Native Christians today and for the past centuries, you know, But Native traditions, there's a kind of disciplinary pressure exerted by the need to appeal for religious freedom to make their traditions look more like what the authorities expected religion to look like. So I see that happening in many cases across Native American history. Yeah, so what you're arguing basically is that people that begin arguing and defending their own practices in the name of religious freedom, often will have their practices transformed or changed by that argument. Like, if you if you start arguing for religious freedom, your tradition itself can change in order to prove that it is deserving of that. Uh, Correct. Of that liberty, yes. yeah. Because who are the authorities you're arguing to? What do they think counts as religion? Yeah, so it challenges the definition of religion that America had, and, and white Europeans and Protestants, but then at the same time, it also challenges the life ways of the people who start arguing for their own religious freedom, too. It's kind of a 
That's right. Changing on all. This is where the book shows that this is a complicated issue. This is a complex issue. That's right. And and this is why you talk about it as a cautionary tale, because as soon as you start talking about religious freedom, your definition of religion can change. Yep. Or your religion can change, depending that's, on... That's right. Yep, that's Tisa Wenger. We're talking about her book, Religious Freedom, The Contested History of an American Ideal. Your next chapter talks about Jewish identity, and it might be strange today for some listeners to hear that Jewish Americans had to work hard to be seen as Jewish and American to sort of fit in. So take us back to that time, what it was like to be a Jew in 19th century America and where religious freedom comes into play. Yeah, well, I would say, first of all, that this is like most history, not a linear tale. (laughs) So this changes for different Jews in America at different times and places. Um, For example, Jews who were raised here versus immigrant Jews. That's right. And And Jews whose families immigrated from Germany much earlier were much more assimilated and accepted in the society kind of in the mid-19th century. In the late 19th century and early 20th century, when many more Jewish immigrants started coming from Eastern Europe and were seen as really a troublesome <laughs> immigrant population. They were, and and you know, globally, really, there was a perception of Jews as not being just a religious group, but a nation and a separate race. So, and that accelerated in the early 20th century, I would say what we, the racialization of Jews and a kind of anti-Semitism. But Categories of race were quite different at that time than they are today for the most part. And so Jews themselves often talked about the Hebrew race and took pride in being of the Hebrew race. And so race was not only a kind of anti-Semitic thing, but people just people understood race was a more maybe more complicated structure than we generally think about it today. But Every most people thought of Jews as being a racial group, and there were there was racial discrimination against Jews. There were kind of quotas set for Jews, Jewish admission to universities. Jews were barred from country clubs, from buying houses in certain neighborhoods. So there was a lot of kind of racial discrimination against Jews, and you know, in groups like the Ku Klux Klan. That accelerated in the 1920s with a kind of revival of the KKK. There was a lot of anti-Semitism that we also, to some degree, see returning. Yeah, this is right why now. some people have been surprised. Is these things have actually been simmering, sort of out of earshot of a lot of people. Yes, and so then you see something like the rally at I think Charleston, where they were saying Jews will not replace yeah, us. Yeah, in and, Charlottesville. Or yes. Charlottesville. Pardon me. Yes. Which, you know, some people see that and are shocked that that kind of anti-Semitism still exists. But it's it's a remnant of something that existed this far back and, and didn't actually go away. That's right. It never went away. It kind of went underground. Yeah. And then it has resurfaced in a really alarming way recently. But my chapter is talking about that context in the early 20th century and how Jews were, were racialized. And as I said, Jews themselves sometimes talked about themselves as a race and as a nation. But they also always used and claimed and took great pride in the concept of religious freedom. And there's something that in 
American Jewish historiography talks about American Jewish exceptionalism. And so the way that Jews in America always saw America as a kind of exceptional place, a place that was exceptionally welcoming, and where Jews could really be at home and be fully full citizens of the United States in a way that they couldn't in Europe. And they had this great principle of religious freedom that would allow them to worship and have a synagogue and... Exactly. And so... That's, you know, Jews really became very patriotic Americans for that reason and saw America as like a new homeland that made Jewish life and Jewish flourishing possible. And of course, there was some truth to that in Jewish experience. But more recent historiography, you know, historians have said, tried to kind of cast some shadow on that story of American exceptionalism to say, well, First of all, Europe gets flattened out and caricatured as always everywhere, harshly anti-Semitic mm-hmm. in a way that needs to be <laughs> yeah. re-examined that there were also spaces for Jewish flourishing yeah. there and that the United States was not as unambiguously free. <laughs> yeah, it's almost um, like the story of that story that that America provided this great opportunity for Jews came to be told in part because Jews actually needed it to be true. Needed it to be true. And in telling it, they were attempting to call America to account, call America to live up to its best principles and its best self. And to see them as worthy of this principle of, of religious freedom and maybe even exemplary. Of, That's right. Of so how great so it could Jews be. were very committed to religious freedom. And of course, not only for these kinds of big picture rhetorical purposes, but also for very specific, concrete, on the ground reasons of defending Jewish practice, kosher practices, fighting off or, you know, a way to resist practices of Bible reading and prayer in a Christian prayer, you know, in, in the school. public schools, right. the ob- observation of Christian holidays, the kind of dominant Christianity that was taken for granted by most of the society as a good thing. And Jews, Jews for the most part, said, well, we're not a opposed to Christians practicing Christianity, but when our children in the school in these schools are required to participate in these Christian acts of worship, and this is supposed to be a public school, that's a violation of our religious freedom. So the, there were all of these reasons, right, for Jews to treasure and prize and claim and invoke the principle of religious freedom. But then I move forward on in the chapter from that recognition to think about some of the other consequences of that focus for them. And so Jews invoked this principle of religious freedom and successfully in in some ways came to be seen more as mainstream American and less racialized, more, more white, for example. And you talk about some of the reasons and some of this quote-unquote successes that came as a result of that. But your next chapter about African Americans shows that the principle of religious freedom didn't provide black Americans with that same sort of ladder to acceptance that they could climb, and that African American invocations of religious freedom really only provided what you call limited relief. That's right. And uh, this chapter is the one that really hammers home most strongly what I call the racial limits of religious freedom. And of course, your listeners might immediately say, but 
African Americans aren't a religious group. What are they? Why is why would there be a chapter on African Americans in a book on religious freedom? And of course, they're not. African Americans have always practiced many different <laughs> religious traditions, and don't aren't kind of identified as in primarily in religious terms. But I look in the, this chapter at how lots of different African Americans who claim lots of different religious identities also invoke this idea and take pride in this idea in the same way that other Americans do, but how it often did not work for them. I start out by looking at the, maybe what we could call the historic black churches, the independent black African-American denominations, like especially the African Methodist Episcopal Church and the black Baptist churches who narrated their histories and their founding as a movement for religious freedom. And so for them, this is a way to claim pride in their heritage and to claim, you know, for example, in the AME Church, the founder Richard Allen as a towering pioneer of religious freedom, and they wanted him to be recognized as such. And so kind of as for American Jews, this is a way for them to place themselves in the American narrative. Mm -hmm. And also to resist, frankly, racist limits on their religious lives and on the independence and autonomy of black churches, which were so important to black communities. And so religious freedom organizing was very important to them. But but those arguments only went so far in a kind of Jim Crow segregationist context those those racial laws, racially racial segregation laws, always seemed to trump African American religious freedom arguments. And then the the second part of the chapter is about what we might call new religious movements, African American religious movements in the early twentieth century. Let's that, talk about the Nation of Islam in particular. One of those groups, uh, the Moorish Science Temple in particular, is a group that you spent some time on in that chapter. Yeah, that's right. They are founded by, well, they appeal to African Americans in kind of the urban north in what we call the Great Migration Period of African American history, where many African Americans are looking for new religious community, new sources of meaning, new ways to understand themselves. And A so, lot of them are leaving the South to, to go north. They think there might be better opportunities better up there. Opportun- and fleeing violent, racial yeah. violence and, and, in yeah, the South, yeah, as well as looking for new jobs, um, new new employment, and, you know, finding sometimes northern cities also being quite racist, but nonetheless making new lives for themselves there. And the Moorish Science Temple is one of those groups that appeal to a number of, quite quite a few African Americans in that context, in part by saying, giving them a new source of pride and a new source of identity and saying, you are not Negroes and all of these derogatory term labels that get applied to you. You really are Moors, you and you need to reclaim this ancient identity and this this ancient Islamic identity and know who you really are. Your history and was stolen through your slavery. Your history was and, stolen, yeah. and you shouldn't be defined by a racist regime that erases your real history and your real identity. And by reclaiming this real history and this real identity, then you can be freed. Right. And so, and so religious they, freedom should make plenty of room for them to do that, one would and assume. That's, and that's what they claimed, right? So they all they pointed to the U.S. Constitution and, said, and, and to the First Amendment and said, you know, we have the right 
as a people to practice our own religion. And, you know, on the one hand, nobody was directly saying, no, you don't. Yeah. <laughs> but on the other hand, they were really demeaned and ridiculed in the press as a, as a cult. An extremist, violent, An extremist, cult. violent yeah. group. And the way that we see the kind of militarization of policing today, <laughs> I see some precursors to that in the way that predominantly black urban neighborhoods were treated as early as the 1920s and 1930s, where in Chicago and Detroit, for example, police brought in these, you know, large numbers of police officers to investigate, you know, the Moorish Science Temple, for example, when there were rumors of a leadership crisis or whatever. It's like disputes that happen within that group are somehow seen as a threat to the peace and order and security of the whole city, <laughs> rather than just being treated as a succession crisis within the Moorish Science Temple. So their appeals for religious freedom really were ridiculed because they weren't taken seriously as a religious group. They were seen as not as as a as a cult, as confidence man, the the leaders. So, and then the Nation of Islam takes off somewhat later, is founded somewhat later than the Moorish Science Temple, but are treated very much the same way. And then yeah, as they're, we... They're trying to establish a school and they can't get government support to do that and stuff. Whereas, that's right. Whereas like a Catholic school, the government's not going to have a problem helping them. That's the kind of discrimination they're facing. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. And, yeah. and sometimes police harassment and oversight and things. Right. Uh, so you're basically saying... Is it is it safe to say that some one of the main differences between the Jewish American experience of being more integrated and the black American experience in the case of people like the Nation of Islam or, or others, that skin color really did play a role in, in, in limiting the religious freedom that was available? Yes, because I think although in the early 20th centuries, I was saying there was a more complex understanding of race and more of a racial hierarchy than just a racial binary, nonetheless, a kind of black-white racial binary, you know, has existed more or less throughout through much of American history and became stronger over the course of the 20th century. So that where you had in the early 20th century, for better or worse, a kind of gradation of races, kind of the, I mean, the argument that I made in the chapter about Jews is that religious freedom by positioning Jewish identity as religious was one way that Jews kind of moved into whiteness in American life primarily, right? Or for the most part. Whereas that movement of kind of European, different European groups, not only the Jews, into whiteness in the middle of, by the middle of the 20th century had the effect of kind of hardening this black-white racial mm. binary, leaving African Americans and maybe also Native people more firmly at the bottom, right, of that binary, even more firmly at the bottom. So when African Americans are trying to then redefine their own identities and say, we're a religious people, right? We are, we are Muslims, we are not Negroes. And that they weren't in doing so trying to deny their blackness, they were just trying to redefine it and, and, and give it a kind of religious meaning as well as just a racial meaning. But the larger society said, nope, <laughs> we, you, you know, we don't, they refused to kind of accept those religious claims. They just, they, and they ridiculed those religious claims and 
to and in some cases criminalized those religious claims rather than accepting and celebrating and allowing those religious identities to kind of flourish alongside others. That's Tisa Wenger. She's Associate Professor of American Religious History at Yale University, and she wrote the book Religious Freedom, the Contested History of an American Ideal. Tisa, Oscar Strauss was an American Jewish historian and a diplomat that you talk about uh, in one of the chapters. And as a historian and a diplomat, he saw those two roles as inseparable. And in the face of World War I and II, You say that Strauss considered the history that he studied immediately relevant to the most pressing challenges of the contemporary world. So as a historian and a diplomat, he's blending these roles. What do you think about people who blend those roles of like historian and public advocate? Yeah, well, I should first correct. I can't resist correcting your chronology to begin because uh, Strauss was really in an earlier period. He was no longer living during, during World War II, but his son, Roger William Strauss, was an active Jewish civic leader in the 1930s and also wrote books about religious freedom. And interestingly, right, Oscar Strauss names him Roger Williams after the famous uh, Rhode Island pioneer for for religious freedom. But yes, you know, the, the, the role of a historian, Oscar Strauss founded the American Jewish Historical Society, was its first president and wrote, um, as a kind of amateur historian, many books about the history of American religious freedom in the 1880s, 1890s. And so what do historians have to say about public policy? I think it it depends on the historian, <laughs> right? But all of us as historians, I think the questions that we ask are inevitably shaped by, by our contemporary, our, our current world, right? Some of us are more focused on speaking to the contemporary moment than others. But I think all of us have our questions and areas of interest shaped by our own, not only our own life stories, but about the political and cultural debates that are happening around us. So, you know, my my concerns about religious freedom, as I mean, I argue in the book, I haven't said this directly in this interview so far, but I do argue that religious freedom in its kind of dominant formulation has as often as not been a tool for white Christian nationalism and kind of a white Christian supremacy that I find really problematic. And so while I affirm the idea of religious freedom, it's really complicated. (laughs) And that's the kind of take-home message of the book, right? Like, Who's religious freedom? What does religious freedom mean? And if you define it in a certain way, who are you excluding and who are you privileging? And so I think uh, while the book is not about the contemporary scene, it shows in a really textured historical way how tricky those questions can be in a way that I hope can inform contemporary conversations and the way that readers think about the debates over religious freedom that are swirling around us now. And that right there is the essence of the cautionary tale uh, yes. that we began with. The idea that religious freedom as an ideal can have negative side effects. What do you think then modern religious leaders and political figures might benefit from reading a history like this? And what kind of changes might they make if they take into account 
the histories that you tell. Well, I'm sure many people will disagree with me on this. And I th- I think I... That's a good way to start out. Like. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, we, we, we were talking briefly before the podcast about the role of a public intellectual and my own kind of hesitance to speak about current events, not because I don't care about them, but because I find it difficult to encapsulate sort of sound bites. <laughs> yeah. Put something in like a Pinterest graphic or something. <laughs> exactly. And, um, but I think that the, when I, I again, I, I, I'm not a legal scholar and I don't have a clearly worked out position on what the kind of um, legal frameworks of religious freedom should be. But the what I have come to on this is that it's important, you know, to interrogate how religious freedom is working in the public discourse, in the public sphere, who's religious freedom. And if every time somebody says religious freedom, we just say, oh, yes, of course, and grant that, then we're not interrogating who's being privileged in the partic- in the particular case of religious freedom that's being advanced and i think sometimes religious freedom in our contemporary discourse gets limited to a very particular set of conservative christian concerns that get too much airplay and too much privilege where we need to scale back the privilege that those particular claims get over and against other people's freedoms, sometimes other people's religious freedoms, right? So in my estimation, it both needs to be pulled back in that way and also broadened to encompass the claims and practices and identities of lots of other people. I think religious freedom at its best is oriented most towards minority groups because those are the people whose freedoms are most likely to actually be infringed. Yeah. So even though it's a cautionary tale, then what is your final best case for why you say religious freedom is an important principle that we do need to care about and we do need to protect? Given the the negative side effects that can happen, (laughs) then what's the case for it? I think the case for it is that lots of people care deeply about identities that they claim as religious, right? And historically and in the present, religious freedom allows them to defend those claims and defend those identities in a, in a way that I think no other legal principle does. There are some scholars today who are very skeptical of religious freedom at all because of its problems and the kind of impossibility of really defining it definitively or defining it in an inclusive enough way. In a way that doesn't privilege one religion over another. That's right. And I think those concerns are real. I think I've kind of documented them exhaustively, some of them in the book. But nonetheless, I see it as a valuable ideal that for minority groups remains an important tool. So I just want everybody to be more cognizant of its its limits and its complexities so that we think carefully about what we're advancing in its name. 
That's Tisa Wenger. She's Associate Professor of American Religious History at Yale University, and she visited Brigham Young University here to talk about her book, Religious Freedom, the Contested History of an American Ideal. People will be able to listen to the lecture that Tisa gave. We'll have a video of that up on the website before this episode is published. So you can go right now and listen to that where she gets, uh, Tisa, you talk a little bit more about Latter-day Saint history as well as part of this story. So that really encouraged people to check that out. Thank you. Yes, I did. It was a bit of an experimental talk, as I say (laughs) at the beginning of that talk, because I was doing a kind of mashup and then it a thought experiment about if I had talked about Latter-day Saints in this book, what would that have looked like? <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, it was a unique um, book talk. And Spencer Fluman, our director, pointed this out, that a lot of people kind of have a book talk that they kind of give on the circuit. They go around and And I and have several versions of that, this. yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I didn't give it. I wrote a different talk for, yeah. for this visit, which was kind of fun, but a little scary. Yeah. Well, I hope people <laughs> check that out. It's interesting to see how Latter-day Saint history weaves in and out of these complexities. Tisa, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. Well, thank you. It's been a fun conversation. 